Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Neil Bawa. Neil co-owns, with over 400 investors, a $345 million multifamily portfolio across nine states. He also runs an apartment investing education company called Multifamily U. Thank you so much for being on the show, Neil. Thanks for having me on, Charles. Delighted to be here. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background professionally before getting involved in real estate investing? Sure. Um, you know, you can call me a geek or a dork or a nerd. I mean, I'm a technologist, a data scientist, uh, very driven by numbers, completely steeped, ridiculously steeped in Silicon Valley culture, which is why sometimes I find, find that syndication is not the right thing for me because there's no <laughs> exit in syndication companies. So we'll talk about that later. But, you know, the fact that there's no exit here is something that bothered uh, me because I'm, I come from that culture. And um, yeah, I have had a successful technology career, um, you know, worked for a company that I had a part ownership in from 1993 to 2013, uh, you know, did all of the presentations to prepare the company for sale and sold it at class leading multiples to a venture capital company based out of Chicago. Um, you know, was doing real estate all along, you know, for, for tax benefits. I had the big fat tech salary. So, you know, when you have the big fat tech salary, you really need something to get, you know, your taxes down, uh, plus also for financial freedom. So that, you know, with those goals in mind, um, my journey in technology started from 2003, but my, um, full-time journey in technology started after that sale in 2013. Okay. So what, uh, did you start with your, the current, um, focus right now on acquiring multifamily and other commercial assets? Or did you start like a lot of people do with smaller, maybe single family or smaller multifamily properties? So most people do big, then bigger, the small, then bigger, then big, right? Well, for me, it was big, small, big. All right. So I started in 2003 by building a custom campus from scratch for the technology company that I was working for. So I started with a new construction project as my first project. So it's like before I did the $10,000 kitchen rehab, I did the $6 million new construction project, right? Can you imagine just how ridiculously uh, not, you know, underprepared I was to do this sucker? And, and, you know, we made a bunch of mistakes, but it was our company's money. There were no investors. There was no pressure. We didn't have a bank. It was all cash. And so uh, one could afford to make a bunch of mistakes and uh, still win. And we, we won big time with, with that campus and ended up building five more. So now some of these were partial builds. Um, I'm, our CEO was phenomenal. He was a great mentor. He did you know, such an incredible amount of the work and guided me. So, so I had somebody watching over what I was doing and correcting every mistake that I made. So it was phenomenal. And so six campuses uh, between 2003 and 2013, new construction. That's really where I got get my new construction shops. And then I went into single family starting 2008 because the data science was telling me that this was the greatest time ever to buy real estate. My family was telling me that I was the greatest idiot in the world. So I had to pick between greatest time and greatest idiot. Luckily, I decided I'm stubborn. So I decided greatest time and my family came around after a while. So it, it worked out well. I ended up buying 10 single family homes in a 
um, in a market called Madera, California, which is 144 miles from where I live. And I picked that using data science. Was incredibly successful. You know, invested a million, turned into three million, um, plus plus the cash flow from the last 12 years. And so I became fixated by this one idea, one central idea, which was, is it possible to use data science to drive everything that you do in real estate, regardless of size and regardless of vertical or asset class? And that idea turned into me creating a course, which is now uh, one of the, the best known courses in real estate. Uh, currently, there are 8,000 students taking that course on udemy.com. And the course uh, was a course that basically used data science in a very simplified yeah, way, in a very streamlined way to pick the best cities, the best neighborhoods uh, in the United States to invest in. And that's how kind of the passion started. And I think that was 2009, 2010 that I started working on that and eventually published in a very raw form and, uh, and ended up refining it over the years. So, so checking on your website, yeah. and as you said, multiple asset classes, can you give us like a, a flavor? You're in a ton of different things, um, whereas some people might focus in one or two asset classes within commercial real estate. Can you give us an idea of the different asset classes that you're involved with currently? Sure. Multifamily and student housing are kind of bread and butter for us. Value-add multifamilies. We currently have six value-add multifamilies. We sold one last quarter. Um, so, so there were seven, but you know, currently we're at six. And then um, we have about six or seven new builds. And these new builds are multifamily, student housing, and industrial. I love the industrial asset class. Yeah. It's better than multifamily. It's just, yeah. it's, it's something that's very hard to get into from a purchase perspective. Because if you're buying an industrial, what value are you adding? I mean, it's just, just you know, a big building with walls, right? So you're not really adding any value. So you always end up buying at a very low cap rate with very uh, low cash flow if you're buying it. So you really have to build it. And so it took me a while to get into industrial. The rest are, you know, multifamily. I build them in 10 states. And, um, but the most interesting part of my portfolio is neither my new construction multifamily slash student housing or my value add multifamily. Um, so I have three divisions of the business. The third division actually is the most unique in that I build large fourplex communities mm. for my investors and I sell it to them and they end up making way more money than they've ever made in either of my either either my my value add syndications or my new construction syndications. So that third division is kind of the greatest value that we've ever produced for our investors. Awesome. Yeah, I saw that being advertised um, on on your website. The um, how did your I mean the industrial and the cold I mean industrial and cold storage are something that I've been following for uh, about yeah. a year now because it's mm -hmm. something that's it's huge, especially with everything, especially uh, just to accelerate it by COVID. But um, how did your student assets, student housing assets, perform during COVID? So we got very lucky. One, you know, one of our assets was actually in construction. So there was really no impact, right? I mean, construction had no impact. Obviously, there weren't any students there. We had another project with students and it did quite well. I mean, nationwide. So, you know, my data point is small. So let me give you kind of the nationwide number. Most people don't know this, right? There's this feeling that student housing was like hotels. It got butchered or student housing was like retail. It was a bloodbath. Actually, there was no such evidence. Firstly, because students pay for an entire year, right? So they were still, they still had to pay and their parents are all signing on the leases. So the parents ended up paying even though the student was back at home. So very, very few private 
student housing facilities had significant cash flow issues. So overall occupancy for the first part of COVID, you know, not, not this school year, but the previous school year was only down about one and a half percent. Revenue was only down about 2% in, in private properties. Now, some of them saw very large increases and I'll explain why that is. So the government dorms, they either shut them down or they cut them down to 25% occupancy. So the students in red states where the colleges were open, right, still couldn't go and live in the dorms because they were saying, we're going to open the colleges, you can come here in person, but we're shutting down our dorms or we're cutting them to 25%. So all of the off-campus private student properties filled up, right? Mm -hmm. And that sort of compensated for the fact that some students simply didn't return to college, they just took a year off. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't better. Student housing didn't do as well in 2020 as it did in 2019. It did, you know, several percent worse in terms of occupancy and delinquency, but it was not like hotels, which have lost 90% of their profit or retail, which lost 60% of their profit. It was a decline in profit, a troublesome year, especially if you had an older student housing property, but the newer stock actually did fairly well. And this, this year that started in August, right? You might think, okay, so this is a full COVID year. What happened there? The answer is, it, it, once again, it came in about 2% behind 2019, and they're projecting an absolute bonanza 2021, which starts in August this year, because they believe that almost 100% of the student population in the US will be back, and students are really fed up living with their parents. Yeah. And so everybody wants to come back. There's an enormous amount of excitement. So the mark, I, let's just say it came through fairly unscathed mm -hmm. compared to retail hotel, those sec those are the sectors that really got slaughtered. Yeah. So you have a very data-driven approach to locating markets and selecting specific properties. Are you able to explain your process and the factors you consider when investing? Absolutely, because I was obsessed with the idea of taking the concept of data science and applying it to people. So I started with a rule which became very painful for me. I said, I need to invent a system which is very powerful, but it needs to be a system that a common person can use after in, in 10 minutes. So you can pick mm -hmm. basically a city anywhere in the United States. You've never heard of it, like, you know, Killeen, Texas, or, you know, Dalton, Georgia. You need to be able to pick this city. And then you have, you have basically at that point, nine minutes and 59 seconds left to figure out if it's an awesome city to invest in. So I was obsessed with this idea of it has to be 10 minutes because if it's not, then it's not for the common man. And my whole purpose was to create like a Wikipedia of real estate data science. I wanted simplicity, but I knew that it couldn't actually be simple. So I took care of all the complexities on my side, right? Okay. And I, I created a system. So it's, it's um, and, and there's two components, one component's public and one component's only for, for our students. So best cities in the neighborhood, there's five rules. And here's the short version of the rules. Obviously this is a free system. So I encourage you to go and actually take the hour worth of training you need to kind of get to that 10 minute point. But here's the short version. I think it'll immediately make sense. So I, I found that when you take 3,300 cities and you take 20 years of data of all the different demographic factors and all the different rental factors, and you, you ask the software, and boy, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying here. You ask the software a question. With all these different factors in cities, which ones, oh magic mirror, matter the most when it comes to my profit? Is it education? Is it population? Is it job growth? Is it home price growth? Is it crime? Is it the schools? Which one matters the most, right? 
And which one matters so much that you can get rid of the other factors and still end up with the same list of cities? Because what I didn't want was, here's 67 different things you have to go research. I wanted like the top five that give me the 98% result and then be able to ignore the other 20, which obviously are important, but these top five kind of took care of those others, right? For example, I found that if I went for crime, then schools I didn't have to go for because schools were inversely proportional to crime. By putting crime into my data set, I was taking care of schools, right? Yeah. That, obviously that's not true in every single city, but uh, what I found was it was true for at least 95% of the time. And because I wanted a simple system, I, I left schools out. So the system basically measures the growth in five areas. And, if I, and it gives you specific Goldilocks zones to be in for those five parameters. Because sometimes too much of a good thing can be bad, right? Mm -hmm. What you don't want is, is, a, is a city that has so much home price growth that it's, you know, everything is bubbly. You're the last man in, you know, you paid, everybody else made money that was exiting by selling to you, right? That sort of thing. So Goldilocks zones are very important. So, and, and a minimum benchmark is important because, you know, the, you think about the benchmarks, right? The first one is population growth. And so you're like, well, okay, so go into a city that, where population is growing, that makes sense. No, go into a city that has a certain percentage of population growth because you want the population growth to be above a certain benchmark for things to get a little crazy in the city. Too many people chasing too little land, too little real estate. That's what you want. You want to cheat and to cheat you want the conditions in the city to be too many people, too little land. So I provided people with a certain threshold of population growth, and I gave them a specific way of figuring out the growth. Because you're like, somebody told me Killeen, Texas is a great city to invest in because it's 67 miles from Austin, but I don't know the first thing about Killeen. Where do I go and get all this stuff? So the hour training tells you not just why it's important, but where to go get it, right? Yeah. It, on the web for free, there's no cost. The, the, the system isn't designed for you to incur any cost. So Rule number one, population growth, a certain amount. Rule number two, home price growth, a certain amount. Rule number three is uh, income growth. Rule number four is crime reduction, not growth, reduction. And rule number five is a certain percentage, certain growth in jobs, which really yeah. I had to rebuild that system for a COVID year because there weren't, there was only one city in the United States, Idaho Falls, that actually had job growth out of 3,000. So I had to actually rebuild that system for a COVID year. Next year, it goes back to where it was, okay. right? So there's like this glitch in the matrix that <laughs> you know I'm going to deal with for a year when it comes to jobs. But everything else still made sense, even during a COVID year. So those five matrices, you pick them for a city. My Excel spreadsheet, which is you know available for free, there's about 50,000 people using it. It gives you kind of an indicator. Are you doing well? Are you not doing so well? And then that gives you a sense for where you are. Now, for those that want to look at neighborhoods within cities, that's something that we cover in our bootcamp because it's more complicated and takes a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes perfect sense about the crime. I wasn't thinking about that because you'd look at crime, healthcare, and education. But looking at crime, if crime's uh, decreasing consistently, you most likely, like you said, have an increase in education and healthcare or stronger. Usually, there, education, so, yeah. uh, either education or healthcare, tends to be responsible for reduction mm, in crime. Yeah. Right. So there yeah. are two two drivers. There's a third one now, which is tech. But obviously, mm -hmm. tech doesn't drive entire cities; it drives portions of cities. Yeah. But healthcare, if a city becomes like, like, for example, Columbus, Ohio is now a healthcare hub. Well, the entire city's crime has dropped because 
back in the 90s, they, they did like multi-billion dollar healthcare bonds and they bought in so much healthcare into the city that the entire city's crime dropped. Every single neighborhood, the crime dropped. Um, the same thing happens with education. You put in a very large university, you put in two or three campuses, the entire city's um, you know, crime level drops, which leads to an increase in home prices and which leads to an increase in, in rents, right? Obviously I'm a multifamily guy. So a lot of people tell me, why is your system based on single family? My answer is simply this. You need to see an increase, a large increase in single family mm -hmm. for there to be a large increase in rent. Nobody really wants to live in apartments. We like to say that it's fashionable. People wanna live in single family homes. It's when single family homes become unavailable for rental mm -hmm. that they move to apartments. Yeah. So if you have a lot of single family stock, if it's really available, you're not gonna hit your 3% rent goal. Right. The other thing too, is you can keep your uh, turnover much lower when that uh, increase in uh, in households or in um, in the homes, like single family homes is increasing out of the reach, like you were saying. So exactly. I mean, they have nowhere yeah. to go, right? There's no, they, they know that there's no next step up. So then you, mm -hmm. they, they're probably living in your property for three years instead of right. one and a half, one and a half, you're not making any money. Three years, you're making lots of money. Yeah, yeah exactly. So another thing you do, uh, which I've never worked on before, but uh, opportunity zones are a great way of reducing an investor's capital gains and something that you focus on. Can you explain what opportunity zones are and why someone would invest in them? Sure. So back in 2017 or 18, I think, for once, this is a bipartisan proposal. So a Republican senator and a congressman that was a Democrat wrote a proposal. And under this proposal, they said, we want the areas in the United States that are weaker from the perspective of job growth, population growth, home price growth, all of those things that I just talked about. They basically said, these are the standard indicators. These are weaker places. We want anyone to be able to go in there and build real estate or build certain kinds of businesses and the profits that come from that should be tax free. This is not like 1031, which is never tax free. It's always tax deferred. You end up paying the taxes at some point. You can push the taxes back. But with opportunity zones, those are tax free. And the initial investment that you make into that opportunity zone, not the profits that come out of it, but the initial investment, they also give you a tax deferral. So just like 1031 gets a tax deferral, they're pushing your taxes on that initial investment back seven years. So you have seven years to refinance, get that money back, pay your taxes. Um, but, but the profits that come out of it are tax free, which it's very rare for the word free to, to occur with real estate. Everything we do is just deferral of taxation, those sorts of things, depreciation. There, there's always a recapture there, but this was unique. So they, they, we ended up with 8,751 census tracts in the US. Think of a census tract as something that's the size of a large neighborhood that were designated by governors of all 50 states and, um, and basically released to the public and said, you go here and you build. Now there are certain scenarios in which you can actually do value add. And that scenario mostly is you have a 50 unit value add building. It's already set up, it has tenants in it but there's a piece of land next to it that's three or four acres. Now you can build another 15 unit building and you can qualify that way, right? Or there's a value add building which really needs a full gut rehab, like, like rip out the electrical, rip out the plumbing, you know, just leave the, the brick standing and gut everything out, then, then it works for, for rehab. So most of the value add world hasn't gotten into it because I can tell you, we get about 50 properties a week from brokers that are value add. And well, actually I would say, not even one out of 50 qualifies. Now they're in opportunity zone. So the broker says this is in an opportunity zone. 
But because you have to increase, you have to put an enormous amount of money into it to actually qualify, they don't really qualify. So I'd say we get one property in six months, that's a value add that actually could qualify. And most of the time it's because it has empty land next to it that you have to build on. So, okay. so when it comes to opportunity zones, this is designed for developers. It's really a 90% of opportunity zone dollars in the US so far have gone to investors investing with developers somewhere in the US. Um, but it is a very dangerous methodology. And, and I'm saying that even though I'm involved in it. So I have two opportunity zone projects. One's in Provo, um, Utah, my favorite market in the US to invest in. The second one is in Houston. Um, but even though I've done two opportunity zone projects, I'm gen genuinely shit, shit scared of opportunity zones because here's the thing. W look at what the government is saying to you, right? This is one of those, you know, give handing you candy sort of thing. This, yeah. There's something wrong here. So you gotta, you have to check it out. What they're saying is there's all these areas that are so depressed. They don't have any population growth. They don't have any rental increases. There's kind of poor people living there, 20, 30% poverty levels. We want you to go in there and spend your money on building beautiful brand new class A buildings, which, which to function and to profit will need thousands of dollars of rents. And then hope that by the time you built them, the area has improved enough so that other people will come in and the poor people will leave, right? And that's actually the premise of Opportunity Zones. And, and when I say it, I say it with very little sarcasm because that's what has to happen for it to work. Because the people that are living in there, if they had the money to invest, to, to give you for these class A buildings, then there would already be class A buildings there. And there aren't, right? So these are places where there's like storage, there's industrial, there's all these kind of low end things. There's, you know, spillage where people have spilled chemicals. Those are the sort of places you're going into. So I'd say 90% of opportunity zones in the US are truly awful places. They're really great for you if you wanna lose your money. So forget about saving taxes. Your principal is gonna be lost in most of them. So what, ta what tax saving are you talking about? If you lose your principal, there's no <laughs> profit, right? So for the most part, I find opportunity zones to be a kind of a very um, oxymoron type of project where it's like, why would you wanna do this? but there was a trick. So the first time I started speaking about this in 2018, they would bring me to conferences as a guy who would just come in and trash opportunity zones. And then four guys would then defend it. So they, they brought me into Las Vegas. I'm standing at a stage, there's a thousand people there. And I'm talking, 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 telling people this, this is the worst idea of all time. And, and so the, the congressman that voted was in the room, right? So the guy walks back to me when I'm done and he kind of says, I think you missed my point there. Did you notice that 10% of these opportunity zones could be designated by governors? And I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, what do you think? That, what, do you think these governments were, the governors were stupid enough to put all of this old kind of land that's in a bad places on there? He handed me a list. And that list, out of 8751 zones, there were 300. He said, these 300 opportunity zones, their demographics, there's nothing wrong with them. But because we gave the governors the freedom to put in whatever stuff they did wanted for 10%, they probably put it in because their sister-in-law owned, uh, you know, 10 acres of land there. And I start, I became fixated with that list. And now I only invest in those because there's yeah. nothing wrong with those. Interesting. Yeah. You'd think it was stagnant markets, but it's really, uh, there's another way of doing it. That's awesome. I mean, so, the, the, you know, the, the, the truth is that where there's money, there's always a way out, right? Yeah. This, this was basically a sneaky little way 
-hmm. of having an out, right? Even though the goal was to invest in places where people really need it. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, as the beginning of 2021, where we are now, what do you foresee for the next 12 to 24 months with commercial real estate, uh, COVID, the new administration and everything? Honestly, the, as you, as, as of today, today is the 10th of Feb, Biden, the Biden administration has already decided to use budget reconciliation to get their 1.5 or $1.9 trillion plan through. I believe they will be successful. Uh, if you come to my webinar on multifamilyu.com about real estate trends, which I, I did a few weeks ago, it's, very, it's a fascinating webinar. It's very fast paced, but I tell people that the 11th minute of the webinar is the most important because it answers the one burning question that everybody has. Why is real estate and stock market doing so phenomenally well when we've lost 30 million jobs? I won't discuss it here because it takes a while to get to it. The bottom line is this, America actually made money in, in COVID, they, we didn't lose money. We ended up with one and a half trillion dollars extra in our economy compared to 2019. And roughly 25% of that went into real estate and 28% of that went into stocks. And that, that explains why these are extremely expensive. And I actually show you exactly where that money came from and exactly where it went. Unfortunately, didn't go to the poor and the needy, right? Okay. But anyway, I think as a result, if Biden is successful in getting a $1.9 trillion program through, or even a one point anything trillion, 1.2, 1.6, expect the best real estate market for single family in history and the best market for multifamily in a long time. Maybe not in history, but expect the best market for multifamily in a long time. You, it will feel crazy. It will feel like everyone and their mother are trying to bid on the same piece of property. You will see cap rates in the fours, right? And now I don't expect to see cap rates in the fours in this quarter or next quarter. But I would say that one year from today, which is Feb 2022, there, it is possible that the average cap rate in the United States, which stands at 5.1, it's been at 5.1 since the pandemic began, that average cap rate I project will drop to 4.9 or below because of this insane amount of money that comes in. Obviously, printing a ridiculous number of trillions of dollars has massive long-term damage to the economy. I get that. What I'd like to point out to people is it takes a very long time for the consequences of money printing to catch up with us, right? The world economy is slowing because of 10 years of money printing. It's going to continue to slow. But in the short run, in, you asked me the question very specifically, what do you see in the next year? I see a phenomenal real estate market. We're just going to pay for all of this later. Yeah. Yeah. So you coach uh, thousands of students with multifamily U platform. What are your most common mistakes that you see investors make? I think that um, the biggest mistake that investors make is that once they get comfortable with an asset class, a city, a syndicator, uh, a certain type of investment, they make the assumption that that is going to be good just because it was good to them once. Yeah. I have never found that to be true for anything. What I've found is there are cities that are great to invest in and then they're not. For example, I consider Dallas. If I, if I had $100 million today, I would at least invest $20 million of that in Dallas for the 10-year growth, right? 
But if I was a syndicator, I wouldn't invest in Dallas today because it's so bubbly. It is so outrageously expensive. And you notice that rent growth in Dallas used to be at five or 6%. And you notice that before the pandemic, it had already slowed to two and a half percent, right? So bottom line is even superstar markets with like Dallas, which are gaining fortune 500 companies by the truckload, they have waves. Everything goes up and goes down. Now, if it's a true superstar company, you know, you, you have an upward wave and then a smaller downward wave and then another upward wave and a smaller downward wave. So the city is still moving up, but it's not going to move up as much as a city where you're at the beginning of that upward wave and you're selling at the peak, you're obviously going to make a lot more money that way in a much shorter amount of time. So the same thing applies for syndicators. Syndicators that have done well in the last five years may not do well in the next five years because they are doing the same thing that they were doing five years ago. If they don't pivot, they don't change. I think that that hurts them. That the same thing applies to, to multifamily. Multifamily is a phenomenal asset class but I can tell you in the last four years, in, in my real estate trends presentation, I have about 20,000 people that watch it. Not once has multifamily been ranked number one as an asset class in the US. But four successive times, it was ranked number two, right? So, and during that time, the, one, the ones that were ranked number one were either self-storage or industrial, right? So those are the asset classes that received the highest ranking and goes to show my point that obviously some asset classes are better than others. Clearly it's obvious today that hotels and retail are not as good as an asset class as, as multifamily. They're now telling us that because of air, air travel, we'll see a pandemic every five to 10 years, may not be as bad as this one, but it could still hurt hotels. It could still hurt retail when the next one happens. Hopefully it'll be shorter because we've gotten smarter at this. Point is, Multifamily is a very strong asset class, but to believe that it's the best asset class all the time is nonsensical. Right now, the best asset class in real estate is not multifamily, not self-storage, not industrial. It's single family for all the reasons that you can understand through the pandemic, right? People desire more space. They want a backyard. They want a lawn. Restaurants have become less important. So that, you know, the flagship apartments that were next to downtowns, Rents have been falling and have been falling for the last 10 or nine, 10 or 11 months. Bottom line is people's mindset changes and sometimes no commercial asset class is as good as single family. I'm not much of a single family guy. I was, but I found a way to make my investors be in single family by designing fourplexes. So right. as far as I'm concerned, I'm making multifamily. It's a hundred units. It has 25 fourplexes. As far as my investor is concerned, they're buying a fourplex forever right? No depreciation recapture, no tax, you know, capital gains after they finish selling the property. So for them, it's single family. Yeah. I think that's a have your cake and eat it too situation. Yeah. The other thing too with that is they're going to have uh, access to the financing for that is going to be, uh, especially if they're a first time investor, it's going to be yeah. easier for them because it's a single family. Not like just easier, cheaper, yeah. right? Oh yeah. So and we pay a lot years. of points. We, it's, it's going to be fixed for 30 years. We pay a lot of points we pay a higher uh, interest rate in multifamily. And then after 10 years, you have to, you get to do it all over again, pay all those fees. Nobody does that, puts that in a 30 year performa. If you actually compare multifamily and, and fourplexes and 30 year performa, the fourplex crushes the multifamily, especially because usually within the first six years, you refinance all your equity out, right? Yeah. So now you're, you're just benefiting from the depreciation and you're never gonna pay taxes yeah. on the gain because when you die, the, the basis will adjust for your family and nobody will ever pay up, pay any taxes on the millions of dollars again. So yeah. 
those kinds of asset classes are are better designed for for wealth building. It's just they're not available. I mean, very few people in the U.S. make that available. Right. Yeah. No. For sure. And uh, the one other thing too about the asset class that you're talking about, um, you see with like uh, real real private equity firms, not just a real estate syndicator or multifamily syndicators. Um, when they're buying real estate, they're in everything. They're buying portfolios of single family um, everywhere they can make a return, right? And uh, it's funny when you listen to them and compare to just a multifamily syndicator, and that's the only trick that they have. And when you're dealing with a private equity firm, I talk to friends that are in there and they're like, uh, we sold this portfolio, we're buying a portfolio, we're going in, you know, this is a 10 year, we're buying down in this area that's growing, but it's not there yet. We're buying industrial, we're doing this, we're, they're in everything that can make. So it's like, they see the trends. And I think that uh, multifamily syndicators are going to have to um, pivot a little bit into different asset classes because multifamily uh, for the last few years has been like super, super competitive. And, um, and it's about to become much more competitive. Yeah, so yeah. as I said, you are going to see more money come into multifamily. You're going to see cap rates go down. And it's going to be extremely difficult yeah. to offer cash to investors, even in the second year, let alone the first right. year. So, Neil, what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? Um, I think uh, humility. I've, I've taken a lot of hits. Mm. And I think some people, when they take those hits, they don't internalize the fact that they sucked, they did, they did something wrong, they, they simply didn't pivot in time or they just needed more experience. I think that understanding the things that we're doing wrong and implementing those are a big factor. We've already talked about the use of data science, so I won't go into that. Uh, the third one is massive use of uh, virtual assistants. So we have 12 employees full-time in the US and we have 16 in the Philippines. We love our Filipino team. They, they enable us to do things that no syndicator, however skilled in the US does. I mean, our portfolio is still fairly small, 350 million. Lots of people have three times, four times our portfolio. And I'm invested with them, so I should know well, how they're doing things. We're, we're just destroying them when it comes to client service and to outreach to investors, adding people to our database because we have this army. Mm, interesting. Uh, one last thing before I close it up, I, you, uh, it's, it's one thing that uh, there's not really an exit plan. Obviously, with the assets that your company has, you can sell that and that's kind of like your asset, uh, your exit. But when you were saying before, there's not a true like in tech. Can you just touch on that briefly and uh, kind of why you still got involved with real estate syndication and investment, even though it's not a clear like you would see with, um, you know, with VC firm that uh, goes public with uh, one of their companies? Yeah. I'm going to use your example, right? So behind you, I see Harborside Partners. This is a company that syndicates, right? So now the value though is in the properties that Harborside is syndicating. Each one of them has an LLC. Maybe one makes a million, one makes half a million. That's the money that you're making. But Harborside itself doesn't have much value. And it's very difficult to sell Harborside, even though it's a functioning profitable business, it's very, very difficult to sell it. So um, for any reasonable amount of money. I mean, you'd, you'd end up selling or underselling it for an amount that doesn't make sense. So most syndicators don't have an exit. We're taught in Silicon Valley, if you don't have an exit, you shouldn't be getting into it. So I came in and thought about the fact that I had no exit other than the individual properties. And, and people are like, but that's an exit. No, it's not because you still need the next property, right? An exit of a business is where you make enough money so that you're done for 10 years if you'd want to. You can go make a movie or do whatever you want next with your life. 
that's an exit. And it's a concept that it's very difficult for me to explain to real estate syndicators, but I knew that there was a way to do an exit. So what I've done is I built three divisions of my business, the value add, which still doesn't have an exit, the development multifamilies and, and, um, and, um, and uh, student housing where I'm developing new asset classes, which has a syndicate, which has a better track record of people being able to exit because you build, you know, three or 4,000 step plans to build a building where value add is like 200 steps, right? So you're building something with more value. And then the fourplex peach, which has the highest value and has the highest chance of exiting. When you combine these three together, I have an exit. So because I have sufficient revenue inside of my Harborside partners, it's called Grow Capitalist, you can see there, I have sufficient annualized revenue. Most of these places, their annualized revenue is like half a million dollars or a million dollars. Nobody wants to buy you for a million bucks. You got to have four or five, six million dollars in annual revenue, right? And a substantially large organization and a path towards increasing that revenue. So we found a way to do that. We, we now charge large amounts of developer fees. We also charge commissions on fourplexes. So now we've got a very large amount of revenue that has nothing to do with backend profits. And that is unique. As far as we know, nobody else has ever done this. Interesting. Well, uh, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business, Neil? So, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to introduce you to my ideas and thoughts and concepts. And the best way to do that is to simply Google my name, N-E-A-L Bawa, B-A-W-A. You'll see my presentations on the web, podcasts, my, my YouTube presentations. You, you'll see a lot. Now, if you like structured learning, then the best thing to do is to go to multifamilyu.com you'll see six or seven of my presentations that are on demand there. You'll also see one or two that are live, which means that they're coming up in the next week or two weeks. So you, you can see that if you like live presentations, sign up for those. But I strongly suggest that you watch two on-demand presentations on my website. One is called Location Magic. It's the one that allows you to pick the best cities in the US. And the second one is called Real Estate Trends. My team and I spend an absolutely gigantic amount of time putting these together. They are very powerful and very fun to watch. So try those two out. And if you like them, if you feel like you're my sort of guy, you're, you're data-driven, you like the use of data to create profit, then there's six or seven other presentations there that you can watch. And, uh, and I think that that'll get you on your way. None of these cost you money, you know? And um, if you get to the point where you think that you wanna use a technology-driven way to become a syndicator, then you can look at our bootcamp. It's about 10% of the price of all of our competitors. But awesome. I'll put you don't links. need you don't need to the bootcamp to really get a great deal out of uh, you know our our content. Okay, well I'll put links to that in show notes and the YouTube notes. Thank you so much for being on, Neil, and uh, have a great rest of your week. Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks for having me on. Bye bye. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. 
Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars Incorporated exclusively.